This episode is sponsored by Airbnb. The focus of season three is all about how art and creativity can be used to bring about social change, combating racism, discrimination, and ultimately finding beauty through justice. Airbnb's mission is to help create a world where people can belong anywhere, and they wanted to support these conversations. And throughout the season, I'll be featuring some of their actions in this space. So stay tuned for that. Okay, let's start the show. So, a musician, songwriter, producer, and composer. I also teach. I'm fascinated by process, how we make what we make, why we make what we make. As a musician, I'm always learning from and inspired by other creatives, other musicians, artists, the arts itself, people. In short, life all inform the music I make. And I think that learning from others enriches not only our own art, but the arts. And why holding up the ladder? Well, because we're all trying to get somewhere and I think we build something stronger if we help each other, if we hold up the ladder rather than pull it up from under us as we climb. I'll be talking to all kinds of creatives about process, lessons learned, things that inspire us, the music we're listening to, what makes us who we are and the help we've had along the way. So join me as we climb, holding up the ladder. So I, I end up doing sociology, sociology of education, and it began to answer some of the questions that um, perplex us today. Those questions don't end the relationship with, with predisposition to education mm-hmm. located in families and how that location is, is often defined by one's class position. Mm-hmm. And of course, intersected with that, there's gender and there's race. Mm -hmm. This is the third and final instalment on the series of discussions on race, class and education in the UK. And it only felt right to interview the person who is the reason I am who I am, who has shaped the way I see the world, the person who literally brought me into the world, my mother, sociologist Dr. Lima Bonick. And my sense of of that is that they push a lot of things on the disintegration of Caribbean families, that we we don't have the right sort of family value and and so on. And we don't have the same commitment to education. But it's interesting to know that a lot of the Caribbean, the professional Caribbeans who came from Jamaica in particular, who came post-Windrush, and f- f- found it really difficult to get on the professional ladder, left and went to North America. Now, the story in North America about West Indians or Caribbean is very different. In fact, sometimes they call them the Jew jams. Really? They, they're in business and, and, and so on. Of course, you had other Caribbean, you had other people who went to work, farm workers and so on. But those who were able to stay, their children were able to access the professions, universities. Mm-hmm. More of them go to universities there than they do here. 
I realise that as children, we view our parents through our lens. You know, our mothers and fathers aren't people with their own dreams and thoughts and desires. It's only as adults that our parents become real people whose identities are separate from ours. And so it was really wonderful to discover things about my mum and her journey into academia for the first time, like the fact that she wore bleached blue jeans to her A-level exams. Lima trained at the Institute of Education where she obtained her PhD in the Sociology of Education, the title Racial Structuring of Educational Marginality. She was a senior lecturer in sociology at St. Mary's University Twickenham. She served also as a school governor. She's also presented her work in the States at Temple University, Ohio State University in Brown, a paper entitled In the Service of Neglected People, Anna Julia Cooper, Ontology and Education. A link to the paper can be found in the podcast blurb. She is currently working on a book, The Will to Know, Redemptive Tradition in the Struggle for Education Among People of African Descent in America and the English-Speaking Caribbean. We talk about her journey into sociology, working with Dr. Basil Bernstein, considered one of the architects of the sociology of education. It manifests itself uh, in, in terms of the, the kinds of education that you get, the kinds of what Ber- Bernstein calls the invisible pedagogy, the pedagogic space of the family. Mm-hmm. So class it, it, it resides there, whether you have books, whether you have a space to do your homework, whether, you know, like a lot of kids who don't have that, the, the pedagogic space in the family home, they won't have a special room, they won't have a library with books. So they rely on the school for everything. We talk about class as a component of social, cultural and economic capital and its impact on education and what my mother describes as the commodification of education. So um, class was was very, very important. It also exhibits particular cultural dispositions. Um, you know, whether you, you are taken to museums, whether you go to libraries, the, you know, the program that you watch, your cultural taste and, and so on. So it underpins ev- everything, really. We talk about Caribbean intellectuals and their contribution to shaping discussions around Britain's colonial legacy in the UK and the Caribbean. People like Trinidadians, CLR James, Jamaicans, Stuart Hall, pioneers in race, class and education, like educational psychologist Bernard Cord. Race wasn't so much so central initially at the Institute of Education. It became more apparent when I was doing the PhD because debates around multicultural education, lots of government reports about the status of children of Caribbean origin. There was the Bernard Cord, uh, a famous and defining pamphlet about how the uh, the West Indian child is made educationally subnormal in British schools because a lot of Caribbean children at the time, instead of going into mainstream schools, were withdrawn and sent to educational subnormal schools, which they call special schools. Jessica Huntley, New Beacon Books founder John LaRose. We talk about James Baldwin, Tony Morrison, W.E.B. Du Bois, Anna Julia Cooper. We talk about Windrush, about the complex relationships between minority groups. We talk about the controversial UK report on race by the Commission on Race and Ethnic Disparities. 
and we talk about music and how it's so connected not only to my childhood but to our relationship. Just a quick note of correction before we start. You'll hear mum make reference to her own mother saying, do you think I left England for you to work in a factory? What mum meant to say was, do you think I left Jamaica to work in a factory? Okay, let's go. Dr. Lima Bonick, aka my mother. Oh gosh. (laughs) (laughs) Oh gosh. How are you mum? I'm fine. You sure you don't want to disown me? (laughs) No, never. Never, never. Thank you very, very much for joining me today. I feel very privileged to talk with you about the things that I've heard you talk about my whole childhood and paid what I thought was not paying any attention, but it seems that I've taken Mm -hmm. a lot of it in. Um, I'm doing the theme of this podcast series is all about creative ways to look at race, anti-racism, discrimination, and so on. I, this is, you're the end of a three-part series looking at race, uh, racism in the UK. Mm-hmm. We had Renny Edu Lodge, who was the first person, mm-hmm. and she was speaking about racism in the UK and some of her experiences. Then we had Michael Taylor, mm-hmm. who was speaking about um, Britain's resistance to the abolition of slavery. Mm-hmm. And then I have you mm-hmm. to talk about race, class and education mm-hmm. and how they intersect. Mm-hmm. So for those that don't know you, tell us who you are and how you came to, you're a sociologist by profession. Yes, yes. Yes. How did I come into sociology? It's a difficult question, actually. I've been pondering that since you asked me, because sometimes I feel that my life has been an accident. In a sense, nothing was scripted in the way in which um, we reconstruct um, the stories about or the narratives about our lives. So I suppose, in a sense, um, but when I looked at it sociologically, it, it there was a structure to it. Mm-hmm. I'm the daughter of a, a daughter born in a British colony, Jamaica. Uh, Jamaica. My mother came um, 56, I think, and we joined her 56, 57. We joined her. I joined her with my brother and two sisters. Um, I'm sorry, two, my brother and uh, a sister. And another brothers came, came a little bit, uh, later. So in that sense, uh, my mother wasn't quite Windrush. She came a few years later, but I'm very much part of that colonial, uh, trajectory. And, um, yes, so it wasn't a sort of a, 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 an accident, but I suppose in a sense, I wasn't expected to go to university. Right. And but at the same time, although I wasn't expected at the at the school to go to university, my mother always had this ambition for us. And when she felt that we weren't doing our own work, she said, um, "That do you think I left England for you to come and work in a factory?" Mm. You know, do you th- all the insults that she suffered and had to work actually outside of the the home for the first time in her life. Um, and experience a lot of racism, direct racism, insults, and she never wanted that for us. Mm. So I never felt that she wasn't serious about her intentions, you know, wasn't really allowed to have boyfriends. I was, I was really policed. (laughs) 
<laughs> so yes, so in a sense, it seems like an accident, but it's not in a sense in, in terms of a historic trajectory. I suppose in that the only bit that seems um, in terms of the wider social structure, not in terms of the ambition that my mother had for me, that I th- I was the f- the first I or the second in Gloucester to go to university. Really, the second who in the second the the the, the, the second child. In fact, I don't know of anybody else of my generation that went. Wow. You know, so that's a big deal. Yeah, but it didn't. It, it didn't feel it at the time because you know you it, at the time I just sort of felt that it was just one step. And I, the way I, I I I applied, I was in the Gloucester Library preparing for A levels, mm. and there were some English girls applying. And I thought, well, if they can apply, I can apply because I don't think my mother knew the process. Yes, yes. And she just knew she wanted us to have an education, mm-hmm. but she didn't really know the process to secure <laughs> it. And so I saw them applying, and I thought, well, if they're applying, our our O-level results were similar. Mm -hmm. And I thought if they're applying, I could apply too. So I applied and she didn't know. Mm -hmm. And then I got an offer and I told her. And what did you apply to do? I applied to do politics and sociology. And again, those subjects were strange, although not so strange, because I remember at that time seeing um, James Baldwin civil rights on the television and uh and so on and my sister at the time was very interested in James Baldwin I think one of the f- the first black novel I read was Another Country really? the, by uh, James Baldwin mm-hmm. and uh, has, has had a kind of intellectual affair with Baldwin mm-hmm. still I still reread his things I mean uh, his books and so on so I think my sister had something to do with it too because she was always very feisty. Mm-hmm. Should have uh, have gone to university, but came here and went uh, to to college, and then went to uh, uh, learn German, and then decided she was working at the embassy. Decided which she was em- the German embassy? German, no, not German embassy. She was working at um, uh, at a. Uh, Doubt, it was an engineering company, mm-hmm. Doughty's in okay. Gloucester, and then Kate went, went to London and was working in patents at Beecham's. Right. And then decided she was going to do German in, in night school, and then she did, and then went to Germany, worked in some African embassies, and then mm-hmm. met her German husband there. So there was, it's, everything doesn't seem to as neat, mm-hmm. you know, as neat mm-hmm. as um, when I speak to English friends. You know, um, it wasn't so, so sometimes some of it seems uh, serendipity and, uh, oh. you know, and so on. So it was a, a, a sort of a little bit weird. There was the always in the background that this is not what we want for you. What what is it the, 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 that a factory work? Oh, I see, I see, yeah. I see. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah you know, um, because my mother. I remember when I was going to do my A levels, I was I was involved with a group of English girls, and they were wearing bleached jeans, hippies, and so on and so forth. And I wanted to be cool, so I bleached my jeans and turned up for the exam was to, for, in bleached jeans. And my mother told me that in Jamaica, when you go to take an exam, you dress up for it because it's a privilege to enter in to enter the arena of learning 
Right. So she was really shocked that people didn't take or take learning what she thought they didn't take learning seriously. But of course, the English class system—they're very serious about education, especially for members of their own class、mm-hmm. and those whom they are prepared to make concessions to.、Mm-hmm. So yeah, so it's、uh, it's it's interesting. Yes. So yeah. So that, that, that's yeah. It's、so. it's funny because obviously, as your child, I don't, you don't. I don't necessarily ask these questions, but you you do sociology. You end up at the Institute of Education. I remember that because it's funny things you remember as a child. I remember going with you to the Institute of Education because of the we could eat chips in the canteen, <laughs> and, and and there was like that ramp in Euston, and I used to like going up and down yeah, it in the yeah, nursery yeah, there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you do. I mean, for me, you are the eternal pedagogue. I feel like everything、mm. with you as a child was was a、mm. teachable moment.、Mm. I often、mm. I think of two things a lot. I think of the fact that if I wanted to know what something meant, you always used to say, "Go look in the dictionary." Mm. Mm. And if I was watching too much television, you, you <laughs> but you used、mm. to say.、Um, Oh, you know, don't you think so and so and so has a degree? You know, they're、mm. not just watching. You watch too much TV. These people on TV have degrees.、Mm. But tell me how you segue into, you know, working as a sociologist at the Institute of Education, then becoming a lecturer, and then I want to talk about class and why.、Mm. You know, even for us as your kids, you've made certain choices、mm. for us because、mm. of it.、Mm. How did I end up at the institute? I think it was because I did a teacher training. You know, I left university, didn't know what I wanted to do, and I thought, well, let me do teaching. And then I went to the institute, and it was just a marvelous place to be at the time.、Mm. The leading sociologists, who were in fact structuring this new field, sociology of education, they were present. Basil Bernstein, being the major leading. Um, sociologist at the, the time, and also in, interestingly, the Institute of Education、um, set a lot of the papers for the colonial colonial、uh, universities or it's, it's people coming from、uh, the colonists to study. They often came to the the Institute of Education or London University, which the Institute of Education is a part of.、Mm. Wrote their exam papers.、Mm. So, or, so、um, a lot of met a lot of people from other parts of the world going to who came to the institute, but. So I, I end up doing sociology and it, it, it is sociology of education, and it began to answer some of the questions that、um, perplex us today. Those questions don't end the relationship with with predisposition to education、mm-hmm. located in families and how that location is is, is often. Is defined by one's class position,、mm-hmm. and of course, intersected with that, there's gender and there's race.、Mm-hmm. And so, I, race wasn't so much so central initially at the Institute of Education. It, 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 when I did the teacher training, it became more apparent when I was doing the PhD because debates around multicultural education, lots of government reports about the status of children of Caribbean origin. There was the Bernard Cord,、uh, a famous and defining pamphlet about how the 
the West Indian child is made educationally subnormal in British schools because a lot of Caribbean children at the time, instead of going into mainstream schools, were withdrawn and sent to educational subnormal schools, which they called special schools. So the parents thought their children were, in fact, going to schools, good schools, because they were special, not because they were um, um, schools really for educationally subnormal and so bernard cord and jessica huntley their the pamphlet and there was the um what was it the new new beacon books mm-hmm. um and um I, this name escapes me john larose john larose yes and you know people like clr james mm-hmm. would be at the new beacon books giving lectures um, and so on Kamal Braithwaite, the um, uh, I think Barbadian Trinidadian scholar. So yes, so and what what the institute did for me it talked about class, it talked about gender, and later mm. with all the other uh, writings, there was a, 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 a necessity to link race to that because although we are racialized, we also. Um, located in a class system Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um you know we have a class structure Mm -hmm. in the caribbean uh to a race class a color class hierarchy and fanon and so on was educative on that so initially it was that sociology gave me an inroad into seeing the connection between family origin and education So let's talk about a class because mm-hmm. it's such a uniquely British thing that impacts, like you say, the colonies, but they were British colonies. Mm-hmm. And, I, you know, when, because obviously we've been chatting about this on and off for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, Stuart Hall said this. He said class is uh, Stuart Hall was a cultural studies pioneer, mm-hmm. academic writer. Mm-hmm. And he said class is the modality in which race is lived. Yes, yes. And I remember you and I were talking and I was sort of writing some things down and you were saying class becomes the measure. This is you saying this to me. Mm-hmm. You're saying class becomes the measure of progress in Western societies, mm-hmm. credentials that can be externally measured mm-hmm. to the point that, you know, white institutions have practiced race, who have practiced racism have mm-hmm. to somehow deal with the fact that you've achieved mm-hmm. a certain level of mm-hmm. success. Mm-hmm. So let's talk. And then they have to concede that you've, you know, attained mm-hmm. a certain benchmark. So let's talk about class mm-hmm. and how, how it manifests itself. Um, well, it, it, it manifests itself uh, in, in terms of the, the kinds of education that you get, the kinds of what Ber- Bernstein calls the invisible pedagogy, the pedagogic space of the family. Mm-hmm. So class it, it resides there, whether you have books, whether you have a space to do your homework, whether, you know, like a lot of kids who don't have that, the, the pedagogic space in the family home, they won't have a special room, they won't have a special, they won't have a library with books. So they rely on the school for everything. And of course, school 
school, the, the, and they, the, and of course, class is an economic relationship, an economic relationship to the means of production, where you work, um, um, how you earn your, your, your living, the income that you receive, where you live. So class was, was very, very important. It also exhibits particular cultural dispositions. Um, you know, whether you, you are taken to museums, whether you go to libraries, the, you know, the program that you watch, your cultural taste, uh, uh, and, uh, and, and so on. So it underpins ev- everything, really. And I think what, what, what was interesting, um, when I was looking at this and looking at the educational aspect of, of class and some of the things I, I just mentioned, Pierre Bourdieu, the um, French sociologist, late Pierre Bourdieu, talks about um, class as three components, if you like. There's uh, in education, there's class, that is the economic, the economic aspect, how you earn your living, your, you know, your what you the the, the um, your, and then there's the culture, the culture that comes from 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 class. The, 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 the status, status and your social network. Who are the people you mix with? You know, do you go to the theater? Um, and so he would do studies looking at the theater visits for children of all the different classes and, and, uh, of, of children in, in Parisian schools. And he has this, and he sees, um, he, he sees class as uh, as an, a component of all the social and cultural capital, and he says that social and cultural capital um, he uses a concept of transubstantiation, and underneath social and cultural capital, there's economic capital, mm. and uh, you, you know networks. So one of the things that recently studies have been do uh, have been and showing is that. Um, the social network of children from the middle class is very important when they leave universities and they want internships. The, the father, if he's a doctor, he'll have other doctors. If he's a lawyer, he'll able to say, oh, you can do your in, an internship or get some experience there. Um, you know, so this, th- these kind of social networks that link you in to, um, a, a trajectory, the people who you meet, um, the person who you marry, you know, mm-hmm. you, you're in this kind of club and it's a club, uh, that is underpinned, um, by, 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 by class. And so even if you fall on hard times, you know, there may be somebody you can make, you, you have connections mm-hmm. that you can call upon. So it's these things are really um, important. So that that's had, um, and of course for for children of migrants, black children who came from, if you like, semi-rural peasant-based um, communities, they didn't have those social networks. Mm-hmm. You know, and of course it works. You know, if your if your dad is a carpenter. You might be able to get you a job <laughs> or um, to work with somebody who's a carpenter, a plumber and so on. So social social uh, and capital, social networks are also related to class, depending on which level of the class system that you mm-hmm. are a part of. I'm just thinking, though, in terms of sort of 
the migrants that are coming here, and I'm, I want to sort of look a little bit at the the, the report that the commission, um, what were they called? I've forgotten. The, the Commission on Race, race and uh, Ethnic Disparities yes, released. Yes, yes, yes. And, you know, they're talking about a certain wave of immigrants. Uh-huh. You know, you have black Caribbeans that have been here since the 50s and 60s, but then you also have black Africans. And then you have, um, you know, Indians and Pakistanis who actually also came around the 50s and 60s. And they're sort of measuring why supposedly Indians and Pakistanis are doing better than black Caribbeans, why black Africans are doing better than black Caribbeans. But when we talk about cultural capital, going to the theatre, the kind of books we're reading, there is often this, you know, I'll hear it a across different immigrant communities, mm-hmm. this running joke of the kind of things that kind of careers that um, Indian children or Chinese mm-hmm. children or African kids could do. It was lawyer, doctor, mm-hmm. engineer. So they weren't um, an accountant, mm-hmm. say. Mm-hmm. They weren't necessarily going to the theatre. Mm-hmm. They weren't doing that. Mm-hmm. They weren't, um, you know, going to museums. Mm-hmm. So, But they, ha- they are still you know, according to this report and even other reports, um, you know, they still seem to be doing better than white, uh, white working class people and black Caribbeans. And so they might not have the cultural side, but they have something else that is working because, yeah. So I'd just be interested to know what you think about that. Well, I think also, you see, you, you it's a question of where people start from when they right. come. And, um, and, um, I mean, I, I'm not sure exactly. I haven't, the, the statistics, I've not broken down very, broken these things down very much. Of course, Indians from the subcontinent, the, you know, there's a different starting point. The Caribbean, these are small island, two million populations. Mm-hmm. Most of them were kind of semi-rural peasants mm-hmm. and they came in the, in the wind rush to work in factories. They weren't mm-hmm. coming as doctors you know, like, say, for example, from India, uh, Pakistani, the Pakistani community isn't as um, um, economically secure as the Indian um, uh, community mm-hmm. and so on. And the Africans that are uh, the Africans now, um, a, a lot, quite a large number of them come from professional families in Africa it, 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 itself. So, um, it, it's a question of where people start from. Sometimes they, they talk about the commitment of Africans to education in a way in which suggests that people from the Caribbean, like my mother, who herself didn't um, go on, didn't have higher education. She, mm-hmm. you know, that, that woman, woman of a, born in 1917, etc. Um, so my sense, my sense of, of that is that they push a lot of things on the disintegration of Caribbean families, that we, we don't have the right sort of family values and, 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 and so on. And we don't have the same commitment to education. But it's interesting to know that a lot of the Caribbean, the professional Caribbeans who came from Jamaica in particular, who came um, post Windrush and found it really difficult to um, get on the professional ladder, left and went to North America. Now, the story in North America about West Indians or Caribbean is very different 
They, 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 in fact, sometimes they call them the Jew jams. Really? They, they're in business and, and, and so on. Of course, you had other Caribbean, you had other people who went to work, farm workers and so on. But those who were able to stay, their children were able to access the professions, universities. Mm-hmm. More of them go to universities there than they do here. And I remember speaking to a, a Jamaican um, academic at Brown University when I gave a paper there and she pointed out that that distinction. Mm -hmm. So, um, and uh, it's interesting that in America, they compare, of course, other, the, the, um, what they call the, Minorities, the, I, I can't remember the term. The model minorities. Mo- model minorities, you know, the Asians mm-hmm. and so on. Mm-hmm. Compare, but they're comparing them to the African Americans. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Caribbeans and African Americans and then black Africans with African Americans. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think there's a difference to what people experience and what uh, opportunities and how that compromised their opportunities. When I've spoken to uh, um, African Americans, they say that, Afri- that white Americans are much easier, that they're more willing to give other minorities and other black minorities a chance because they're so grateful. And they know they, and, but African Americans know what they've been through and they know that they can't do certain things and get away with them. So they feel, they feel, um, much less uh, able to give African-Americans the chance because African-Americans will know how race works in America and can mm. call them up on it, or, uh. or call them up um, w- w- when they step out, uh, out of line. And in fact, when I, I gave a paper in Philadelphia, there was this, this um, I think, where was he from? He was from... Uh, Gosh, he was somewhere. It was, I can't remember where now, but he was uh, from a country in Africa. Mm. And this African American friend of mine um, told me he was criticizing African Americans because he was trying to set up something in Philadelphia and he didn't get the response that he wanted. And he made the mistake of describing the African Americans that didn't give him the response uh, he wanted to my African American friend, you people. Uh, and so this was a black African, African describing yeah. African Americans as you people. Okay, and they say they and then Africans when they go to America and other they think why well, you people are complaining you can eat chicken every day, mm-hmm. you know. Whereas African Americans have fought um, civil rights, fought for civil rights. Mm-hmm. And they've made it easier for these people to come in and, and, uh, for, for, for African, for non-African Americans. And then they're told that they're looked down on as, as not doing the right thing, not working enough and so on and so mm. forth, always looking for the, um, easy, easy way out. And so there is a kind of, of, of um, a, a kind of insult. They feel subject not only to the insults of the whites, but insults to other minorities who sort of victimize them for the, the uh, victimize them for not appearing to do as well as they should. But I mean, I think African Americans have made fantastic strides. Mm-hmm. If you think of their position in the academy, it's not enough, of course, mm-hmm. and they would tell you they're the first to be arguing. But they've made it possible for us to go there, for other people from the other islands mm-hmm. to go. 
they have a, a very important position in the American uh, academy in universities, you know. And so I think it's a little bit unfair. It well, not not a little bit unfair. It's it's, it's very ma- majorly unfair, really. Um, Liberia was the place oh, okay. in Africa this this um, person came from. I no, what I was going on to say about the ca- Caribbean uh, people from the Caribbean, Jamaica, and uh, and so on from other other islands. There, they say my parents, a lot of that generation, post-generation, wanted to go back. Mm. And um, it takes a couple of generations for things, for, for opportunities to be realized and settled. Mm. More, Caribbe- more Caribbean children from Caribbean backgrounds are going to university. But it's a question of which universities mm-hmm. they're going to. The, the white groups, they still go to predominantly the Russell, Russell League. Russell League as in Kings, UCL, UCL Cambridge, all the London-based. London, it's Cambridge, Russell League as well. Yeah, yeah, still, yeah, okay. yeah. Red bricks, Red, I guess. Yeah, yes. And, um, and so... You know, so the, the the other minorities they they're not going to those the 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 Russell League in the same number, although Indians, especially Indians, they 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 are catching up. I think they say a third of all consultants adopted are Indian consultants are Indians. That was part of the um, the Sewell report, report report and. Um, you know, t- taking strong GCSE passes in English, the whites, white British still outrank. Uh, the, yes, the white British groups rank 10th in attainment and so on. And Chinese and Indians are still uh, outperforming um, other white, white, white groups and so on. Um, and Caribbean kids are still, and uh, Caribbean and Pakistani pupils are still uh, below, below, below that. So. Yeah, it's funny. I was thinking about this, about sort of, because, well, a few things in response to what you're saying. When we think of Caribbean people in this country, the, the kind of Caribbean people that are black Caribbeans that are represented in this paper, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not, I'm, I feel like they're not also including the there are is a well particularly in the caribbean anyway there's a very large jamaican for example middle class mm-hmm. this country has produced people like stuart hall clr james mm-hmm. or there were lots of caribbean intellectuals mm-hmm. but those were made in the caribbean they came they came if you like uh, having had their 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 first um primary secondary education mm-hmm. in the caribbean stuart stuart hall was a Rhodes scholar mm-hmm. and um it came from a sort of the privileged sort of i suppose lower uh middle class privileged um you know um caribbean background uh, the 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 race the the brown the brown middle class is uh, yeah, yeah, yeah that's where he came from as in, when you say brown, you're talking about the complexion. Yes, in the, yes, yeah. yes. In, in fact, in his memoir, sort of, it's like a memoir. He talks very much about that mm-hmm. family, mm-hmm. about the 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 race, race and the color color 
color phobia. Mm-hmm. Um, the lighter you are, the closer you are to black, to whiteness, mm-hmm. the more accepted you would be. And he was, if you like, the darker, the darker of the darker than his sister. And I'm not sure, but think of the brother too. But he, and they, he talked about, they'd say poor Stuart because he was darker. Mm. But he went to, uh, uh, you know, same high school as Michael Manley, the, pr- mm, the prime, prime, minister. prime minister. Yeah, yeah. And, um, so um, CLR James was fero- ferocious in his brilliance at mm. school, you know. But these schools are, you know, these were incredibly, <laughs> you know, uh, two two scholarships. Uh, to get into high school or two or four to go to the top schools, um, when, when they were young men. And can you imagine the waste of talent? You know, because mm-hmm. every child, these island scholarships yeah, yeah, and yeah, every yeah. child who entered the, those scholarships yeah. had the ability to go on to mm-hmm. um, higher education mm-hmm. and to mm-hmm. schools that would prepare them for higher education. Uh, but if their parents couldn't could, uh, couldn't pay, mm-hmm. often they couldn't go. Mm-hmm. So um, CLR and his father was a, a, a teacher knew that his son was bright and prepared him to take the exam. The, 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 they could only take the, the ceiling. You could take them. You couldn't go beyond 12 to take the exam. He took it at, at, at eight. Wow. And, and, and they said that he, he came third or third in the whole of Trinidad. And, but he said later, they said that he, he really came first, but they held him back a year. Um, to give somebody else a chance. Um, and uh, Eric Williams, the first prime minister, again, who was a scholar at, at Oxford, who, where he, 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 historian, similar sort of, uh, I, um, idea, you know, very, very competitive systems mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and not enough education for the mass of people to, mm-hmm. to, um, to access because they didn't have the money to pay. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so there was an enormous wastage of talent. And it's significant, actually, that it was the um, post-independent Jamaica that had compulsory education. The British didn't do it all the time. Mm-hmm. They were there. You know, it was very mediocre. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, I mean, we are jumping around a bit. So, mm-hmm, yeah. Yeah. No, finish what you're going to say. Yeah, so, no, so what I'm saying, what I'm suggesting is that a lot of the people who came to England, um, they were a lot of them came from backgrounds where there were the, the level of education, level of schooling was inadequate. Mm-hmm. Um, the nurses, they a lot of the nurses that came and took uh, um, SRN, uh, state registered nurses, and so on. The, perhaps the, I think the indication is that maybe the women had slightly higher levels of education than the mm-hmm. men who came to work in the munition factories, to build up, you know, to do manual work mm, mm, um, mm. And, and so on. And their, their, their children, the products that followed them um, after they settled, they would have gone to secondary modern school, then comprehensive school. They wouldn't be living in the, living in the best areas mm. with good, good schools and so on. So, you know, it take, it takes time. It, 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 I mean, it, it takes time. And, um, what, I'm, I'm not sure about what it's going to take. I mean, what's his name? Corner West. Okay. 
talks about class affirmative action is not just about race, it's about class as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a lot of uh, um, um, West Africans send their children to private schools. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. And, uh, and a lot of Caribbean people, you know, sort of skilled workers, um, self-employed, you know, mm-hmm. paying 30-odd thousand a year for education or 20 mm-hmm, mm-hmm. when you're trying to rehouse, when you're trying to put food on the table, build huge, huge amounts of money. It's a phenomenal amount. If you're a person of colour, it's very likely that you or someone you know will be able to share stories of not being able to rent or buy property because of how you look or because of your name. My name is Matsudiso. It's a South African name and it really should be pronounced Matsidiso. But, well, I was raised in London and this is my accent, so I say Matsudiso. Sometimes people think my name is Japanese and then they see my face and I see their faces trying to compute what they imagined against what they actually see. Those of us in the UK may remember the phrase landlords had in their windows in the 50s and 60s, no blacks, no dogs, no Irish. And you may think times have changed. We have anti-discrimination laws, progress has been made, but governments can only go so far to legislate against people's racist or discriminatory mindsets. And so, what does a consumer-led tech company like Airbnb do when people of colour report racial discrimination? Well, after an audit conducted by civil rights lawyer Laura Murphy, and after working with a number of consultants and stakeholders, Airbnb set up Project Lighthouse. In partnership with Colour of Change, the United States' largest online racial justice organisation, with millions of members and with guidance from civil rights and privacy rights organisations, Airbnb launched this groundbreaking project to measure and fight bias and discrimination. Using tech, to collect the data needed to measure and evaluate discrimination on its platform in the US so it can take additional action against it. Central to social change is not just talking about the problems, but as my guest African feminist and activist Jessica Horn said in season one, it's about identifying the problem, then doing the work to change it, and also, she said, having the humility to acknowledge that you don't have all the answers. And I think Airbnb have recognised that, by seeking out people who understand racism and its impact, and secondly, acknowledging that their contribution is a small part of a much-needed wider whole. As Colour of Change President Rashad Robinson said, I quote, Silicon Valley has a long way to go to constructively engage with civil rights groups by proactively, not reactively, seeking out our expertise to build platforms that serve black people instead of harming us. Airbnb is setting an important precedent by taking measurable steps to examine and dismantle discriminatory online systems. We will continue to urge Airbnb to thoughtfully engage members of our communities in developing solutions to support long-time black residents at risk of displacement from their neighbourhoods. To find out more, you can type in Measuring Discrimination on the Airbnb platform or click the link in the podcast blurb. It's interesting for me because I'm just thinking of a number of things. Mm-hmm. First of all, that this sort of, you mentioned it at the beginning, this sort of 
we have racialized mm-hmm. a predisposition to 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 skills mm-hmm. and it's just not true mm-hmm. it's not mm-hmm. true environment is central mm-hmm. to people being able to flourish mm-hmm. and we have racialized behavior mm-hmm. and we have racialized abilities mm-hmm. and and one of the things i've noticed and i i haven't developed it enough but i've just been thinking about it mm-hmm. it seems that the longer black people stay in this country the less well they do mm-hmm. at least for the caribbean mm-hmm. people mm-hmm. like the longer because if you think your mum was really determined that she didn't want you to work in a, a factory. The first wave of immigrants that come. So even I was listening to uh, some podcast about um, sort of cultural and racialized education in the States. And this person was saying that longer immigrants. So if you have like second generation, mm-hmm. they, they start to mirror mm-hmm. the majority mm-hmm. population. Mm-hmm. And the first wave of immigrants mm-hmm. are always the most, um, uh, what's the word? Is it fastidious? Mm-hmm. They're really, really mm-hmm. focused on like education is the only way out. You have to work. And it starts to change the longer they stay. Mm-hmm. So I'm also wondering what, how much is what is happening structurally and how much is the environments that families create? Because your, your mum's generation, people weren't getting divorced. Mm-hmm. Very few people were. And so I'm just, I'm trying to work out what, what has happened because I don't believe that people are racially predisposed to be clever or not. Mm-hmm. Culture has, a, and when I say culture, I'm not talking about necessarily black culture. I'm talking about when, what Bourdieu calls for, about mm-hmm. describes culture as. So I'm just, I'm, yeah, I'm just thinking, I'm sort of, well, I'm sort of thinking out loud and also responding to what you're saying and trying to work out why well i i also i also think that um certain communities are more are much more vulnerable to disruption economic and socioeconomic disruption mm-hmm. um if 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 there when when there's an econ- a downturn in the economy mm-hmm. certain groups are more uh, um exposed to to um unemployment um um, housing cost and and, and 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 so on, and it doesn't necessarily mean because uh, because your your um, parents have ambition for you, they have ambition for you. But if that uh, if the structures aren't there to re- to realize that ambition, it's very very um, difficult for you to achieve. Now, I uh, teachers already or also have a view about black people's intelligence. Mm. We, we, we have carried with us this notion that we, uh, we are innately, um, we, 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 in, 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 we are, we lack sort of, sort of intellectual capacity, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, um, uh, right up until the six, the seventies, you know, lots and lots of research was saying about the inheritance of 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 genetic of of genetic inferiority mm-hmm. and 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 so on. So there's a lot. So so I think when black kids enter school, they carry this perception of them, and and I, it's not, it's not. Um, you know, this is the idea that they have no civilization to pass on, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and there is this notion that they they are not um, 
intellectually curious mm-hmm. um and, and and so forth so it's very it, it's it's very very hard and yet when you you know when i go to my to to the village that i that we we came from and i see that this little village with one or two schoolers produced a couple of prime ministers you know mm. that the that um teachers don't they don't sort of exert or oh, i i don't know i don't want to sort of damn uh teachers here but i don't think a lot of them exert enough um what was the word i'm looking for they 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 don't exert enough authority over the pedagogic space Mm. and um you know it's like if you want if you want uh, and i i just think that a lot of a lot of black kids feel that they're not taken seriously mm. and um and this this idea and, and also if if parents if parents don't go to school for a meeting sometimes for example i think I mean, it might be changing mm. but sometimes um parents don't know if you don't know how to access the school if you don't know how the uh, if you don't know how to make the school take you seriously mm. it's very difficult like for I, there was an interesting a long time ago in one of his his books in one of his books tony sewell the the chair of the um the report, the, the report in his book black masculinity he talked a bit about how um teachers related to black pupils and how black pupils felt that they were ignored and teachers didn't t- treat them well and yeah. so on and this one boy came home and told his father that the, he didn't think the teacher liked him and the father said well, I don't care if the teacher don't like you all I want you to do if he says 2 plus 2 is 4 I want you to write it down mm. you're not there for him to like like mm. you but so there is this expectation that you know that somehow just because you're a, a black kid that you have to be tough mm-hmm. you have to be you you have to be tough and you you don't respond to rejection and to to your self doubt mm. the self doubt that the school imposes uh, impose mm-hmm. on you i i th- i think that you know because <laughs> we came if you like as the most vulnerable community that vulnerability has not left us mm. yeah it's it's very interesting also because i think children also have to, uh, well, they shouldn't have to, but need to know how to self-advocate. Yeah. And when you're in a class where you know something is wrong, mm-hmm. but you're, you understand that the teacher is in charge, mm-hmm. you can feel something is wrong, mm-hmm. but you can't be expected to know how to advocate for yourself mm-hmm. where you know this teacher doesn't like, it doesn't mm-hmm. like me and you can't put your finger mm-hmm. on it, but actually there's this intuitive understanding that there is something not okay there. And I keep, I think often about, um, and it's what something you and dad did very well is you just taught us without, I think, us realizing how to self advocate. And I, I don't remember this, but it was recounted to me that apparently I came home when I was at primary school and asked dad what the short version of my name was. Mm-hmm. And he said, you don't have one. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
So I, and I think I was three. I think they said, oh, we can't call you Max. Your heart, your name is too hard to say. We'll call you Mary. Mm-hmm. I think I was three. Mm-hmm. Now what already that's doing is undermining identity. Mm-hmm. It's only because I came home and I said it. Mm-hmm. That, that dad said, your name is Matsudiso. And so everyone in primary school, that's what they know me as. They, everybody from that period of my life, nobody calls me Matsu. They all call me Matsudiso. But if you're in a classroom where that's happening all the time and you're being consistently, um, underestimated and you don't have the language to say, this is what is happening or have parents that know how to advocate, it's extremely difficult. But I want to find something that you said. I just want to quote it because it was just so, yeah, here we go. Because, you know, you talk about, so you've written this paper that you presented in Philadelphia, wasn't it? Um, in the service of neglected people, Anna Julia Cooper, ontology and education. And Anna Julia Cooper was an educator, wasn't she? Black feminist in America. Dunbar school and, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mathematician and so on. But mm-hmm. you said, in your paper that I really liked, you were talking about Anna Julie Cooper and you said she was able to interpret children as part of a whole social experience. Mm-hmm. Reading Cooper, there is a rich quality to our understanding. This is what I want to focus on, mm-hmm. that the subjectivity of experience mm-hmm. arises out of real objective structures of existence. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing you're, we are experiencing. Mm-hmm. Our subjective experience mm-hmm. is impacted by objective mm-hmm. structures of course, of course. and they can't be separated. Yeah, so when somebody says, um, why didn't you work hard enough? You know, this thing of if you just work really, really hard against all odds, mm-hmm. odds you'll make mm-hmm. it mm-hmm. without understanding mm-hmm. all the subjective, mm-hmm. the other th- things that are impacting mm-hmm. on esteem. Mm-hmm. So, a lot of people are making it in spite of, not because of. Do, do you know what I mean? Yeah, 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 yeah. I think there is a sense in which there is, um, in a lot of the way we talk about children's experience, and especially black children, is somehow they have to have such such um, subjective determination. Mm. It's like they have to block out their own ex- um, objective existence mm-hmm. that they have to su- they have to um, survive in spite of everything mm. you know because so for example they say that uh, you know um, somebody would walk five six miles to school and not have lunch and still uh, work and mm-hmm. g- got to university so that becomes the model Mm. But not that becomes the model. Not everybody can mm, mm, mm. Ca- can can overcome mm. the 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 brutality of an objective experience to survive. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And sometimes some people survive. So you see a, a lot of these survival programs. I don't remember the you know who somebody who becomes a millionaire had awful parents. Father threw him out in the winter in um, in New York without his clothes, mm-hmm. and he manages to do and to succeed. So that becomes the model. Mm-hmm. So, um, so is, if if there are few examples of that, mm-hmm. then everybody people think, well, if he could do it, so can you. Mm-hmm. And so there is an in and and it, and it's and it's an exception. But we make the we talk about the exception as if it's a rule, mm-hmm. and we know that it isn't mm-hmm. because we know that working class children, white or black, mm-hmm. are still at the margins of the professions. They still live in the worst housing. Um, 
you know, they, they, they don't access the cultural institutions that exist for, for everybody because they haven't been inducted with the kinds of, um, cultural predisposition to engage with those, those institutions. And so, for example, now they're saying that, you know, white working class boys are even doing worse than Caribbean kids. Mm-hmm. What are the structural reasons for that? And I think it's very easy for people to ignore class, mm-hmm. as if to say class is in your just in your head and it's not a, 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 a material relation. And if you think back on the, during this pandemic, how many children living in poverty didn't have computers to work mm-hmm. from? They were three, four, three, four kids trying to use their parents' phone to access work mm. as the, the, the school provides. Um, is that going to come up in the statistics when them and other minority mm-hmm. kids, mm-hmm. children, you know, will it come up in the statistics to say that that was the reason yeah. or will their families be blamed for saying that they don't r- have the right culture to uh, to to, to um, engage with 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 um, education, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so the, you know the 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 material um, deprivation is real, mm-hmm. and I think we are in a situation where we don't take material deprivation seriously. We think that the will can trans. Um, transcend. transcend that's what the word I'm looking for can, can transcend this material de- de- deprivation sometimes it does because sometimes there's one person can you, you one person in your life that can uh, facilitate it mm-hmm. you know like the teacher that recognizes a, a poor kid who's bright mm. and somehow can pick can access information and can focus. But what happens to the the the, the children who's, who d- don't have anybody to sort of pick out something that they're good at and and and, and enable them to to succeed? I think also, you know, if you're one of thirty children in a class, mm-hmm. I don't know how a teacher can even do that mm-hmm. anyway. And, and another thing, most of the people I know who went to private schools, they tell me that there were fifteen of them in their class. Mm-hmm. And they had tuition and, and the after-school things. Yeah. And I mean, even because, you know, there's a rapper, a Carla, and he has um, a book called Natives. And, and he's, I, yes, he was serialized on BBC, on Radio 4. I didn't get a chance to listen to it. But what he talks about, because he was very, very bright mm-hmm. and they put him in the special class, mm-hmm. but he had, um, I think, I think I can't remember fully because I've read the book. It was a while ago. I think either a mother who knew how to advocate it for him, but he also went to Saturday school. He went to one of those Pan-African Saturday schools. So even in that space, there was something additional he was doing where there were teachers that recognised, wait a minute, this this boy is not special. When you say special, what do you mean? So he went, when he was in his normal primary school, they just assumed that he was stupid. Okay. And said, oh, he must, they have to put him in some kind of like oh, special see, class. They, and he was really, really, really bright. I and then they thought he had an attitude and there was I mean like lots of really intentionally racist things were happening but he was at a Saturday school and had somebody in his life and he would be considered and I think he would say this from a working class background yes and I saw something online where he addressed the Oxford Union talking about imperialism and and race and roads and so on yeah 
moving on mm-hmm. and this will be a good thing because you say in this paper that I was mm-hmm. talking about you know in the service of neglected people mm-hmm. you talk about a curative pedagogic mm-hmm. action mm-hmm. I always ask my guests what what lessons have they learned that we can learn from I'd be interested to know when you talk about curative pedagogic action, what does a restorative education system look like? I, I think it means giving children time. Mm-hmm. Um, it me- it, and it means creating a space within the school where children can work, um, a, a lot of a support uh, for families, not, if you like, um, mortgage the, ch- the child's future for some predetermined class end uh, or ends. And, um, for example, in, in Julia Cooper, she advocated to work in a school, uh, to work in a school, to keep a school that the, the Washington district wanted to close. And she wanted the school to stay open to give that space for African-American children who were, in fact, going to schools where they didn't have enough teachers, enough resources. She got the community involved and she kept that school going, bringing in like-minded people with that sort of philosophy. Whereas I think nowadays, you know, children don't have time. They're not given the time. Um, we have predetermined ends about this is what the sort of, this is the family the child comes from. This is the kind of uh, um, um, career that the, 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 this, this child is going to enter and so on. So we don't have to do enough. What is it now that children can't have enough books? We're not spending enough on, on education. A lot of sc- schools don't have books for, for their students. So we need to make, if, if we think that education is important, we need to fund it properly. Mm. And we need to, to, to have smaller classes. Why is it that children who are so privileged, who have parents who can pay, but the private tuition go to private schools, have private tuition, and they're in classes much smaller than children who don't have those resources. And then we turn around and we sort of blame, <laughs> we blame the family for families for not um, doing what is expected of them when they don't have that sort of um, um, resource. So I think that's, uh, the, 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 you know, the curative pedagogic space is to actually think about the child and think about what the child needs and to value what we think as a society or a group of people is important you know not to give up we're, in in our, in the UK um we're very quick to um exclude and uh, and and apparently the exclusion statistics went up when schools had to uh, have a certain level of a- attainment in order to be considered good school and to attract certain sort of parents to create competition and so on and so forth. So they would just exclude uh, um, students whom they thought would bring down, bring them down in the league table. Mm-hmm. So lots of people wrote about that in the eighties and in the, in, 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 in the nineties. And I, you know, I don't know the extent to which that practice 
continued. It obviously still continues because large numbers of black kids, in, especially black and working class kids in South London, for one, are excluded, you know. Mm. And when the exclusion takes place, they're, they're, they're exposed to gangs who want to groom them mm. because they don't have space. Instead of being at school, they're just walking the streets because their parents are, are at work and so on and so forth. So that curative space is to recognize the children are children. And my sense is, too, there is an expectation now that um, we ascribe to young kids a, a, a method of thinking and taking responsibility, which they don't have, mm. you know, um, uh, responsibility for their behavior in a sense sometimes i think it's almost as if ki- children aren't allowed to be children anymore mm, mm. we impose adult expectations far too early mm. and we become very punitive if they don't meet those mm. adult standards that we set mm. so uh, you know so ch- you know they're expected to grow up much much too fast mm-hmm. um well, I suppose in a sense it works two ways. On the one hand, we we um, prevent them from taking certain responsibilities and we expect them to take certain responsibilities that's expected of children and the ones that are not expected of them, we, we, we expect, mm-hmm. you know. I think it's, 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 it's very, very difficult um, for parents who don't have, who, who are not able to engage with education and, and carve out the space for their children. Because I think a lot of, a lot of, a lot of parents, especially if, if they're not, have a sort of come from a middle class background, they kind of expect schools because we're told this is the, this is the role of the school and this mm. is what the school can do lots of parents don't expect to do the things that schools say they should do Mm. because they think that this that's the domain of education and i think there is a blurring of that domain for can you give me an example well i don't think i i my sense is that when i was growing up it wasn't so much expected that my parents would um help me as much with my homework Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now parents are expected to do it, and if they can't do it, they can, they pay for a tuition. Mm-hmm. If I couldn't do something, my mother wasn't the first person I went to. I would go back to the school. Mm-hmm. I would go back to my teacher, and so because um, you know the, the, there's so much um, social stuff that schools are expected to do. Sometimes I feel that the pedagogic and the educational is being squeezed and squeezed Mm. more and more into a shorter space. You know, I suppose now they say they have homework clubs. I don't know. Uh, They used to. I don't know if they still exist. Yeah. um, But teachers say that they're really, really overworked. Oh, yeah. Well, I know Mm. teachers and yeah, yeah, they, they are, but they're, but you said this once before, and I, and I, I think part of the problem is attached to this. You talk about the commodification of education. Mm, 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 and because everything is about numbers and lead tables, mm, mm, the mm, space to learn mm, um, and to explore and having the time to explore and to critically think, mm, to have ideas that you can think, well, why do I have this idea and have those ideas challenged to really... Because everything is so much about money and bottom lines and 
it makes it very difficult mm. for the you know for education in the truest sense to actually happen yes yeah, so the the where you have to make sure that your school is in the league table you want to ensure that the, you want to make sure that those children who are going to give you the results to put you in a, a positive a positive um range in a league table you you will you won't focus so much on those children who you regard as a distraction mm-hmm. um when the external measures become so stark mm-hmm. and um it it just makes it very difficult to focus on the children who really need it mm-hmm. i mean one of the interesting things that i remember when i was a governor some of the teachers they had a washing machine in school to wash the some children's clothes mm. so where family the dysfunction the breakdown in families and so on and children living in care and all this sort of thing and that was something that i think a few years ago wouldn't have been the mm. the, the role of 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 of, of a teachers yeah 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 Yeah, we're running out of time, so I want to. You're writing a book, Mum. Mm-hmm. You've been writing a book. Yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> Tell I know. me that I keep harassing you to finish yeah, I know, um, I because know, I think I it's it's important yeah. to hear your voice. What is this book about? Well, I don't know. I, I suppose growing up in the UK, you realise that there's no space, no space to acknowledge your difference, your your intellectual difference, the difference of where you come from, the different, the the um, the, the the history that went into making you and making your community and the people who shaped your um, understanding of your location, your location in modernity. So I want to, I want to try and make sense about what, how did modernity produce us? What are the struggles that, that, that um, launched? And education was a central part of that struggle to define what it is to be educated and what sort of education was necessary, necessary for us to, take control of ourselves you know how do we deal with that conscription of being um part of modernity and um and and making sure that our voice and that the particularities of that experience is present Mm -hmm. in the in in that so um you know i suppose it's a way. It's a way of talking about what Du Bois says. Du Bois, Du Bois, the Americans say Du Bois. This notion of second sight. What is the modernity? What it, What does European civilization mean for us? Mm-hmm. Um, how did it position us? You know, there's in in the Julie Cooper paper. She when she talked about going on a train. And it says for for whites and colored people, she said, "Well, where did she go?" Mm. She, she says, "I see two dingy little rooms with with four ladies swinging over one, and four colored people over the other, while wondering under which uh, which head I come." Right, of course, because she was that was that intersection of race yes. and gender, isn't it? Yeah. Being part of a world that that rejects you. 
And then another uh, fascinating point that Du Bois makes is that is self-obliteration the highest aspiration that black people can 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 aspire? Because what does uh, that mean? Well, 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 he means that you know that we, in a sense we are expected to suppress our difference or our, our difference or. Uh, any notion of authenticity because he's African American and he's, he's, um, from, uh, people of color. His, his origins are in Africa and it's also Europe. But if, if you, if, if you are black, it's, it's like everything that defines that specificity of your origin doesn't get a look in Mm -hmm. and um so i want to look see at how these um intellectuals of the the 20th century how they sort of negotiated that that Mm -hmm. um dilemma of what uh du bois talks about two-toneness um and uh how that shaped a, a kind of education discourse you know, one of the the the, prob- the problem is do you, you know should we have expectations just like how you know this idea that we have a history that needs representation mm-hmm. um you know the black lives matter and the taking down of the colson and um, the colson statue, statue. The, the 35 miles from where i grew up Nobody ever talked about him. I did history. Nobody mentioned Mm -hmm. that this major slave trader was Mm -hmm. in Bristol. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting. I remember a friend of mine played there and it was a big thing to play in Colston Hall because Mm -hmm. they didn't have black musicians at the time. Mm -hmm. And it was a big thing. Nobody talked about um, its relationship to slavery and so on. So there is this expectation as what Du Bois talks, Du Bois talks about, about Mm -hmm. self-obliteration. And that that history cannot be represented or actually used to engage with what modernity meant or mean for us as people from another part of of, of the world, and who were in fact dragged into into European modernity in in chains. Mm. And so on. So there, there are all these things that I think, and, and the way in which it shaped a particular kind of education discourse mm-hmm. uh, 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 around um, presentation of self, really, yeah. and recognizing that our self is kind of multiplex in a sense, a kind of a duplex self as well. How do we how do we negotiate that? Uh, when the, when you you know you're told that you you shouldn't that shouldn't be that happened ages ago we sh- you shouldn't be interested in mm-hmm. it. It's funny I was because I've been contemplating it because you talk about in again back to that paper you know Du Bois refused to construct black people as problems mm-hmm. and instead mm-hmm. focused on the problems they yes, face. Yes. But I wonder if there's a place even beyond that, you know, um, and I understand because of the time he was in, Mm -hmm. but you know how I was going on about that Toni Morrison quote. I'm going to read it just because I have it here. But 
she says the function, the very serious mm-hmm. function of racism is distraction. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It keeps you from doing your work. Mm-hmm. It keeps you explaining over and over again your reason for being. Mm-hmm. Somebody says you have no language and you spend 20 years proving that you do. Mm-hmm. Somebody says your head isn't shaped properly. So you have scientists working on the, the fact that it is. Mm-hmm. Somebody says you have no art. So you dredge that up. Somebody says you have no kingdom. So you dredge that up. Mm-hmm. None of this is necessary. There is all, there will always be one more thing. Mm-hmm. And I wonder whether there is even a place beyond looking at the problems we have faced. I, I think it's important. I think what you're talking about is important. But there, this place of, and perhaps I feel like there is a generation of people, of young black people that are doing this. I call, you know, the Gen Zers, the people that are under 25, that they are so determined mm. to be themselves mm. without any of the constraints. Mm. Um, they're not trying to prove mm. anything. Mm. They just want mm. to be. And I wonder whether, mm. whether there is even space for, you know, not having to talk even about the redress the problems, mm. but just say, we're going to, you know, we always talk about a seat at the table. Mm. It's almost like, no, we're going to even create our own yeah, table. Right. A bit like, um, I know you haven't seen it yet, but the Marvel film Wakanda, and they just they would just have this whole place somewhere else that nobody knew of, and that's where they lived and they existed without without always through this white gaze, this colonial gaze. Do you know what I mean? I see that, but the the, the fact is, it's very difficult to, and and I completely understand the the point that um, um, Toni Morrison makes. Take for example this uh, psychometric testing, you know. Um, in order to get a certain sort of education, there was this notion that we are in, inherently inf- inferior. Mm. So you had to have, you, you know, there was an scientist. One of the thing, the problem was that if we, if we are, can, we, we, if we can only be educated to a certain point because we have this genetic flaw mm-hmm. in, in, in our genes and so on. So, of course, scientists had to do the, had to engage in that research in order for black kids to get into school. Got you, got you. So it's not that you just, did, I mean, she was, she was, she, uh, I don't think she's just saying that, um, that, that, that it wasn't necessary. Well, it wasn't necessary, but the fact that it existed meant that we had to address, ad- address that. So take, for example, the whole issue of the sending Caribbean kids in the seventies to ESN school, which is educationally subnormal okay. school that had to be addressed by, um, Bernard Cord, who was an educational psychologist, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and he had to present the research so that schools, to challenge schools. So it's not to say that we're, we're just doing it for the sake of this was part of the material, material history that we had to, to confront. Again, writing about, um, about black life. Do you get people who want to publish your work because it isn't about somebody that they can identify mm-hmm. with? So everything that um, black people wanted, they had to fight in order to get it to uh, mm-hmm. to to, to um, get it accepted. Um, desegregate schools, access to medicine, and so on. So I, yeah, it, 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 it is, it is true to recognize that we had a philosophy, you know, all these, uh, for example, there's an interesting, um, African philosophy and so on. Difficult to find a book in the West because this idea that Africans don't have philosophy. Mm-hmm. 
So, you know, uh, how do you, whatever philosophy that exists, this Western philosophy, Mm -hmm. and then you try and put yourself, you try and use their concepts to ensure that you can think abstractly and Mm -hmm. have a view about yourself um, in in the world. Um, Du Bois says, "Here here then is the dilemma, and it's a puzzling one, I admit. Um, What... After all, am I? Am I American? Am I a Negro? Can I be both? Or is my duty to cease to be a Negro as soon as possible and be American? If I strive to be a a Negro, am I perpetuating the cleft that threatens to separate black and white America? Do I, uh, is my only solution self obliteration? Mm, 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 mm. You know, and, um, it doesn't necessarily mean that we have to accept the terms in which the 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 question is posed mm-hmm. the question is posed from the position of whiteness isn't mm-hmm. it this idea that it the, that whiteness owns everything in civilization that is worthy mm-hmm. and if we want to be recognized mm-hmm. as part of a valid civilization then we need to forget everything that is specific Mm-hmm. to our history, our history in the West, because our history in the West has not been the same. You know, when you look at um, the, the, the level of destruction of indigenous cultures in the Americas, millions of Africans perishing in, in, across the, uh, the Atlantic, their barbaric treatment um, in, in, in the New World uh, and so on. And the amount of uh, of um, surplus extracted from from uh, their labor that that is part of of Western culture. Mm-hmm. So um, it's the, the only thing is that the West uh, won't accept it, and it's no wonder that, for example, uh, Du Bois talks about the problem of the 20th century as the problem of the colour line, because for the for they had to then start addressing, here are these people that they brought here in chains, they have a different history, and we, they, have, they, they want to understand their history and to understand their place in Western modernity, because these are the people that are not going to go back to Africa. Mm-hmm. They're here. Mm-hmm. We, we are, you know, the Western hemisphere is where we were brought to and was where we've been for the last 400 years. And that history, we want to make sense of it mm-hmm. uh, to understand ourselves and our relation to Western uh, modernity. What is our philosophical reference? And it's a bit of both. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we are actually in two camps. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe that, that uh, and there the, there is a need for that to be re- to be recognized um yeah and and I, I i do think that when i when i walk on the street they're not thinking there is an english woman mm-hmm. you know and um i i i i mean i don't know i mean people write about that interesting i don't think that you, you, you that we have to suppress that history that history has shaped us mm. and we have to kind of uh, try and make uh, make sense of it mm. um and so one so th- th- this is why i try to do so because um there are aspects of my experience that is not part of british history mm. Mm. um or at least not acknowledged mm. Mm. um 
And so I want to make sense, uh, sense of this. It's like saying that women want to make a sense of their history different from the, the, that of male, the history that's written by men about men and not included them. So I think that's, for me, that's sort of like a parallel to trying to make sense of, um, the history of uh, of our history in modernity, that difference, but that connectedness, mm-hmm. um, or, or or that connection with the the the, the history of, of of empire and so on. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Does that make no, it's sense? It's good. It makes plenty of sense. My last question, Mum. Mm-hmm. What music are you listening oh, to? Oh God, I don't don't get a chance. Uh, I, I don't know. I'm sort of my taste is very retro, or it's not really progressed very much. I sort of. Uh, Listen, still listen to a lot of Marvin Gaye. Uh-huh. <laughs> what else do I listen to? Listen to to your introduction to Schubert's Impromptu. Okay, yeah, yes, listen yes. to that. Um, what else do I listen to? I listen to um, what's her name? Uh, Sim, um, Nina Simone. Mm-hmm. Some of the stuff, uh, music that's of your more your generation. Uh, Badu, Erica Badu, Erica Badu. Miles Davis, I listened uh-huh. to Miles Davis. Um, and what was I was listening to? Ella Fitzgerald, because she reminded me of my mother the other day. You know what I was listening to the other day that made me think of you? What made me think of you talking about grandma mm-hmm. was uh, Lionel Richie's Penny Lover. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, she, she, said, oh, yeah she said, she said, oh, you've got such a nice voice, she said. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But yeah. Dr. Lehman Bonick, also known as my mother, mm-hmm. um, what the, there's a really great quote by I think we you know is it Nayira Wahid says my mother was my first country the first place I ever lived mm. and I feel very much that the stuff you know you don't realize when you're little how much you just take in that mm. so much of what we learn isn't what's said it's what's done mm. and so I'm definitely my my mother's child so thank you mm. for your your intellect. Well, I think the next, if I were to do it, when I get this all, to, when I put this all together, because these issues are so, so broad, and sometimes you say something and people think that you're excluding other things, and in a sense you're not, because our lives have been so complex, they've been so much a uh, 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 kind of interconnection of different different forces different sort of traditions and it's so different difficult to combine everything or to give um a sort of uh, a primacy to one and neglect another mm-hmm. um so you know we are made up of lots of lots of different things and i, I i'm very much um interested by that quote that um Toni Morrison made, but I think if she were to take what is often, often when she, it doesn't matter, um, a difference doesn't matter. If she were to t- take that, she would not have produced all these very, very detailed and very poignant, powerful books that she uh, has written about black life. She didn't write about American life. She wrote, she, the background is actually how often how it structured black life in America. But she wrote, and I suppose what she was saying, maybe what she's saying that if she had taken this idea that, that her specificity didn't matter, she wouldn't write about the things that she wrote about because you get a unique sense of African-American life 
through reading Toni Morrison. Yeah, yeah. Maybe it was the same kind of two-ness, if you like, mm-hmm. that, that Du Bois talks about, that mm-hmm. sort of double consciousness mm-hmm. that even she herself was wrestling with. Yes. I remember when we went to go and see her read Americana, mm-hmm. and do you remember she mm-hmm. said, somebody asked her about mm-hmm. sort of the white gaze or something mm-hmm. like that, and she mm-hmm. said that when she spoke to people like Wallace or Yinka or mm-hmm. Chinua or Chebe, mm-hmm. and they wrote about Africanness, mm-hmm. And it was never through the gaze of whiteness. Mm-hmm. And she said, but look, Ralph Ellison wrote Invisible Man, but invisible to whom? Ooh, yes, yes. You know, yes. and so maybe she was also part of that. Yes. She acknowledged that yes, double consciousness yes, yes, that somebody yes, like yes, Wallace yes, Inca yes, doesn't yes, have yes, and other African yeah. writers. And, and, she, and she, she said that um, she wasn't writing for a white audience. Yeah, yeah. Um, in her uh, literary, there's a literary essay that I have of her, of, of hers. And she she said that you know she thought yes Ralph Ellison was writing for a white or I don't think James Baldwin was necessarily although I mean go tell it on the mountain of course whites are in the background because they're shaping mm-hmm. the the you know a, a way of life a brutalization that black people are forced to be conscious of mm-hmm. um, um, but he's writing about. The, the inter the interstices of life and how actually <laughs> the psychological uh, torture that is was America for black people how that mm-hmm. shaped a lot of African American sense of self and mm-hmm. so on, but you know but she was sort of a she she's uh, uh, um, Toni Morrison I must admit uh, that last interview that we last in series of interviews yeah, that yeah, she yeah. did they were sort of really really brilliant when she talks about. Songs of Solomon and um, the bluest eye, the bluest eye, and beloved, mm-hmm. you know, um, an act of you know, you know, supreme courage. You know that quote about the mother that she gave birth, and if anybody else was going to take their life, it should be her, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and so on. So there's a lot of, uh, of pain and mm-hmm. um, that goes into producing mm-hmm. work like that and even confronting this kind of um, history as well anyway well mum thank you very much I appreciate it and I appreciate you you're going to have to do a lot of editing (laughs) thank you so much to Dr Lima Bonick or mum thank you mum I think my mum can downplay how knowledgeable and passionate she is about education But as someone who has grown up with her, I can tell you that this is her life's work, not just in her professional and academic life, but in her role as a mother and as a grandmother. She is committed to education, education whose rationale is, I quote, the fermentation of autonomy. And I can tell you that she's raised three intellectually autonomous individuals. I am, of course, biased and I make zero apologies. So I do hope she finishes her book soon so you and I can all read it. Thank you for listening. Holding Up the Ladder is available wherever you listen to podcasts. Please share, like, subscribe to the podcast, leave comments. We also want to hear from you about any initiatives, individuals or organisations you know of that are using the arts and creativity to champion social change. You can DM us on Twitter at H-U-T-L underscore or Instagram holding up the ladder hashtag H-U-T-L 
or email us at contacthutl at gmail.com. Thank you again to our sponsors, Airbnb. To learn more about the work they're doing and why they're supporting Holding Up the Ladder, head to the links in the podcast blurb. We're taking a week off, but we'll be back the week after next to talk about representation and diversity in the music industry with writer, composer, producer, publisher and A&R manager, Felix Howard. But I'm, I'm actually pleasantly surprised that it's 19%. I thought it was way less still. You know, I don't, I don't know that a parity is, or a majority even, is possible because of the way that structural racism is set up in the United Kingdom and in America and in Europe. Because you're dealing with forces that are much bigger than the music business. Mm-hmm. But if we're dealing with black music, which, by the way, we're all dealing with black music because it's all black music, you know, mm-hmm. this music business that we're in, then you'd at least like it to be half, if not more, if not a majority. But I don't know that kids who are growing up always get presented with the opportunities that they could be in the music business. Mm-hmm. And that's a shame because we're probably, well, we're definitely missing out on some brilliant talent. Until next time. <laughs>